Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi there, Alistair Campbell here, Editor-at-Large of the New European. Write a weekly column covering politics, Europe, Scotland, Ireland, mental health, sport, lots and lots and lots and lots of stuff. And if you'd like to enjoy more from the New European, please join us. Subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Hello, Snowflakes. Welcome back to the New European podcast from the people who bring you the New European. My name is Steve Anglesey. Coming up on the New European podcast, he's up to his neck in sleeves, he's behind in the polls, his mouth's got him into trouble once again. His Brexit's a nightmare, his own MPs and Tory grandees are beginning to turn on him. And he's just relieved himself all over the red wall by scrapping half of HS2. On this podcast, we'll be asking, is Britain getting buyer's remorse over Boris Johnson? We'll be hearing from Tim Walker, whose interview with Ken Clark in this week's New European is more bad news for Boris Johnson. We are close to an elected dictatorship. That's what Ken Clark says. Do you agree? And in another shameful week, we'll be putting more pompous politicians and putrid pundits into our hall of shame. All political careers end in failure. Enoch Powell said that. He certainly proved his own point, didn't he? He was, became a swivel-eyed old racist who was who walked around saying things like, Mikhail Gorbachev is going to bring about the death and the burial of the American empire. And in 1987, he said that there would be a Labour landslide at the general election. Margaret Thatcher won it by 102 seats and Enoch Powell lost his own seat. But is this the start of Boris Johnson's political career ending in failure? Is it the moment when people realise that this great showman, this upper-class man who can connect with working-class people, this presumed son of Churchill, is, is not any of those things. He's just a rumpled, seedy, greedy, lazy loser. He's more an idea than a man. He's got slogans and schemes and quips and tricks, but he's never got a real plan and he's not got the energy or frankly, the brain to hammer one out. He's like bagpuss. He's a sleepy old bag of stuffing getting the mice on the mouse organ to do all his work for him. Only half the mice have got second jobs on the side. The other half are useless and all of them are batshit insane. Oh, and in a private conversation at the Garrett Club with Professor Yaffle and Gabriel the Toad, Bagpuss has slagged off Madeline the Ragdoll, to whom he's now married for the purpose of this tortured analogy. A new European's exclusive story about what Johnson said to a gang of his old Telegraph cronies regarding his marriage to Carrie Simmons has got a lot of play on social media. Some of your replies are here. Sarah Vera said, I thought the third time was supposed to be a charm. Tom Brown said, shouldn't he be making confessions to a priest through a grill, not to members of the Garrett Club over a mixed grill? And Dan Waller said, how many 2019 voters in red wall seats will now be experiencing buyer's remorse? Kay Etherington reminds us 
And the old adage, when a serial cheat marries his mistress, he creates a vacancy. And you had plenty to say too about Tim Walker's interview with Ken Clark, in which the former Chancellor lays into Johnson over the chaos of the last few weeks. Optimistic boy said, it's unsettling that loads of Tories I once thought of as Thatcherite bastards when I was younger, they now seem like wise elder statesmen. This Overton window is a bugger. Liz Reid said Ken Clark was a superb Chancellor, quietly paying off the national debt, lowering income tax. If I ever had to vote for a Tory, it would be him. But uh, Lorraine Schneider said, just because Ken Clark criticises the government doesn't make him a sage or a saviour. He's still a Tory. He still supported pretty much everything that has led to this corrupt, self-serving bunch to get into power. Joe Stafford says, I'm fed up of fellow pro-Europeans lionising Ken Clark, Grieve, Subri, Rory Stewart and their ilk. The most anyone with a social conscience should say is that they were the, ver- the best of a very bad bunch indeed and that we can do far better as a country. But there was more pro-Ken than anti-Ken in our replies. John Stephen uh, McLorian said, Ken Clark is one of very few Conservatives whom I respect. I oppose most of his policies and his ideology, but I think he's a statesman with integrity. I would disagree with him, though, that the UK is close to a dictatorship. The Prime Minister unlawfully shut down Parliament. Information is withheld. Lies are delivered. Contracts arbitrarily awarded. Scrutiny avoided. We are not close to a dictatorship. A dictatorship is already here. Joining me now to discuss all that is Tim Walker, whose political diary Mandrake appears every week in The New European, along with his theatre reviews. This week, of course, we're talking about his interview with Ken Clark. Tim, welcome back to the podcast. Um, we'll, we'll get to your interview with Ken Clark in a moment, but does, I mean, does this week now feel like the beginning of the end for Boris Johnson? I, I was struck with by something that you, you wrote on social media, which was the question isn't if there's going to be a leadership bid, but when. So will there be a leadership bid soon, do you think? And, and who will be the candidates if there is one? I don't think it'll be before Christmas now. It's that sort of time of year and nothing can really happen anymore until <laughs> after Christmas. I think it's interesting that a lot of MPs who haven't been in the tea rooms in the Commons for a very long period of time are suddenly there. There seems to be a sense that uh, people are jockeying for position at the moment. And it may be, and I think there was a guy called Anthony Mayer who was a kind of stalking horse under Thatcher and yes. who sort of put himself up to try for the job. It's possible we have a kind of stalking horse come forward and then, you know, the sort of the, the doors are open to a serious challenger. People keep going on about Michael Gove and I know Michael Gove is, a, is very close to an extremely elderly newspaper tycoon in Rupert Murdoch. And by the way, if you're a politician, the first thing to do is not be extremely close to an extremely elderly newspaper uh, tycoon because they tend not to last terribly long. And you've got to think about the people who follow them or probably regard you as a bit of a, a bit of a creep. So the reality is it, it will almost certainly be Liz Truss because it will be up to Tory party members and all the polls of Tory party members at Conservative Home do put her well, in, uh, well ahead. Rishi Sunak you know, is quite high up there too. Uh, and I, I actually think Rishi probably wouldn't be all that bad. But he has a skin pigmentation issue as far as Tory party members are concerned. And I can't, I'd like to believe it's possible. I'd like to believe it's possible. I can't see them voting for him as leader. So it'll almost certainly be, you know, be um, Liz Truss. Gosh, they're so boring, these people. You can hardly remember their names. But 
the, but the sad thing is it will be more chaos uh, because all of the people that Johnson put in his cabinet, you know, as we know, they only got the jobs because they were essentially quite useless and, and signed up to the madnesses of Brexit. So we'll, we will lurch, I suspect, possibly maybe before the next election through maybe even a few more leaders. But I, I certainly think it's unlikely that Johnson will lead us into the next election. And it's interesting, I mean, moving on to Ken Clark. You know, you ask people like Ken Clark, do you think Boris Johnson will lead us into the next election? And there's no immediate, oh yeah, no, definitely. It's sort of, I don't really know. You know, everything is so unpredictable. But I, I, I doubt, he, don't you, Steve? I doubt it'll be Boris Johnson. I think he seems too tarnished now. Yes, I think he is. Uh, I think he is uh, increasingly tarnished. He looked his apology when it came was 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 quite. It was quite humiliating. Finally, he's he's now dragging himself around saying he's crashed the car and this and that. And you know, I think I think we all know that um, it, it's a job that he you know he wanted to be the pro- he wanted to he's looking to be for, for what an ex prime minister does rather than uh, rather than relishing the duties of a, of a serving prime minister. I think um, I think it'll quite suit him to be out of office. This, this remark that Johnson is said to have made about Carrie Simmons at the at the Garrett Club. This is the sort of thing he says all the time, isn't it? It's these sort of thought thoughtless hurtful quips it's another weakness of his isn't it well that's the sad thing about it i mean you know he's all, already referred to women as totty we've had uh, a journalist i know a good friend of mine charlotte edwards uh saying that johnson sort of was sort of touching her inappropriately uh other pe- other people have made sort of similar allegations obviously about the father now and obviously a lot of people have been saying like father like son he, he's not good with women i mean i'd be i would have been astonished if he'd bounded into that uh, Garrick dinner hosted by the great climate science denial uh, Charles Moore. I'd be astonished if he'd walked in and said, oh, the joys of married life, the, the joys of being a father. <laughs> Lots of aspects of that story, which amused me in the New European, because apart from anything else, he is in a room with filled with Daily Telegraph journalists. And OK, I know one of them has now said what you know they say he said, you know, and I'm sure number 10 might have a view on all of this at some point. But the point is, he's in a room with, what, 20, 30 maybe journalists, maybe less, I don't know, maybe more, I wasn't there. But you would have thought, just one of them would have thought, actually, that's quite a good story. You know, the Telegraph might have used this. And also, you might have thought, too, and, you know, it's an unattributed quote, unfortunately, in our story. But otherwise, I think, you know, it would, it would go everywhere. But the fact of the matter is, the, the journalists who heard this, who reported to James what what it James what it is that he said you would have thought would kind of put the country first because these sort of comments give an indication of what kind of a man Boris Johnson is I mean I worked at the Telegraph for 12 years and these sort of comments you know sort of casually misogynistic comments casually unpleasant comments about all sorts of sections of the community uh, were quite normal from him and, and we've seen it in his writings you know tank top bum boys to talk about gays and watermelon smiles to talk about BAME people and so forth. Uh, he, you know, he is effortlessly offensive. But then, you know, if I'd been to Eton and I had a very rich daddy and, you know, my whole life would be really about one period of privilege moving on to another, I suppose I'd probably become quite offensive, really, because nobody would ever challenge me. Well, that's this is the thing, isn't it? Uh, Ken Clark has has challenged him in this brilliant interview you've done. I think we could have picked a, 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 quite a few different headlines. The, the the one we went with was was Ken Clark saying that we are now close to an elected 
dictatorship. What what moments in that interview stood out for you? Because I, I, I you know, I know from experience when you're interviewing somebody, you when they say something really good, you you do get a little thrill, don't you? And you you go, I'll, I'll just I'll file that one away as a possible headline or a possible intro. Steve, it was very kind of you to give to allow me to. To, to go over three pages with it. And, you know, normally with politicians, you're thinking, God, can I really get a thousand words out of this guy? He's so boring. With, with Ken Clark, I suppose I found the whole experience rather depressing because it kind of confirmed my view of where we are. But to have it from Ken Clark, who is, whether we like him or not, he is one of the big beasts of the political jungle. Uh, to, to have him saying this, and, and he's clearly you know, 100% on the ball and still extremely well informed. I did, find, I did find very depressing. There were lots of aspects of it I thought were interesting. One is he talked to me about, you know, when he was trying to get the European bill, European Communities Bill through the Commons, and this is going sort of back to the 70s, and he was sort of having to negotiate with the Labour benches and people like Roy Jenkins, who's then before he defected, he was then a Labour MP. And he said, you know, the most implacable opponents that he had then were Michael Foote and Enoch Powell. And I, I just thought, listening to him, God, the more things change, the more they stay the same. You know, Michael Foote, you know, in, in this latest sort of production of Brexit was, of course, played by Jeremy Corbyn. Enoch yeah. Powell is now played by Boris Johnson. So these fights, these endless struggles sort of continue all the time. The other thing I found very depressing is that I'd not really given it much thought. Of course, we have had this act of terrorism uh, not long ago, and people in MI5, I noted, said afterwards, you know, we had no idea this was coming. And then you sort of hear Ken Clark saying that he had assumed, after we'd given up information sharing agreement that we had when we were in the EU, where we basically shared with other European countries intelligence on, you know, crime and, and terrorism, he had assumed that we would still, you know, the police would, you know, because they presumably get on with each other, they would, they would still be cooperating kind of under the radar. But in fact, no, we're not, you know, we're not part of Europol. We're not sharing information with them because we're so petty and they're not sharing it with us. And, you know, that is sort of a danger, you know, to, to life and limb of ordinary people. And I think that horrified Clark. And, and I think we're... As Ken Clark said, none of us signed up to this. Nobody, you know, even the most rabid Brexiteers, as far as I could see, signed up to leaving sort of the intelligence services, leaving uh, things like um, Horizon. You know, the, and we've just seen with the, the pandemic how, how we desperately need scientists. And Horizon was a great European-wide way of sharing information about, about science and for scientists to work together uh, to develop uh, cures for things like you know COVID and so forth and and it, there's a sense of isolationism really which I think Ken, Ken Clark got across very well the fact that we're now really and we saw this with Afghanistan America couldn't really care less what we think anymore we're just another state we're sort of headed back to the 1970s in terms of our relationship with America and and of course being Ken Clark he can also see things in the bigger picture and of course, people like me obsess all the time about Brexit and Johnson, but it is part of a kind of worldwide failure, as, as he sees yes. it, of the sort of end of the old sort of order, you know, the, the old sort of cooperation between countries, the, the worldwide economy, he believes, is in, in, in great trouble. We are also, as the country, as he points out now, mortgaged up to the hilt. We've now got record debt. And, you know, as any of us know, who still have mortgages, you know, if interest rates start to go up, that can kind of, you know, be catastrophic and be, be disastrous. So I suppose in, in this kind of broad way, Ken, 
I suppose depressed me, but he confirmed my worst fears about where we're heading. Yes, I mean it's an incredibly wide-ranging uh, piece. He does, I mean, he does he does talk about the decline of the West. He's also talking about the decline of the Conservative Party as well, isn't he? Which we had David Liddington on the podcast last week, and you know he he's also worried that Ken Clark says the party is now more right-wing and nationalist than at any time in my lifetime. Um, what did he say about? He, he contrasted the way that Johnson seems to do business with the way that Margaret Thatcher ran things. When you know, we always thought of Thatcher as this this kind, you know, an ideologue who, who was in total control of everything. But he seemed to suggest that Thatcher was was kind of more open to to dissent. It, that, that I thought uh, well, it was interesting and actually true when I thought about it. I mean, I used to write horrible pieces about her. I was on The Observer when she was in power. I used to get sort of Bernard Ingham phone up and sort of say, really, you know, what you've written this week is absolute rubbish. But there was no sense of I'm going to shut you down or I'm going to close your newspaper. I'm going to sue you. It, Bernard was just sort of weary about it. He just sort of, oh, gosh, you've got it wrong again. Which normally, to be fair, I had. I think at the height of her power, I ran a piece on The Observer saying, this is Thatcher to step down. And, and you know, you, but it, it was probably wishful thinking on the part of a rather prepubescent journalist. I think I, I think he was sad, uh, Ken Clark, about the, the the failure of MPs now to to abide by the rules. I mean, you know, Ken Clark had outside interests. You know, he worked for a tobacco company, you know, mm. at one point. But you couldn't blame him for hypocrisy because you know he, he would sit there smoking his cigars as I interviewed him. But as he understood, you know, he understood that there are you don't have to have rules written down. He, he knew he couldn't represent companies that you know he, he was being paid for. And in terms of Thatcher, I'm getting eventually to the question you asked. He, you know, <laughs> Thatcher, she basically gave her ministers a degree of auto autonomy. Ken Clark, when he was a, a minister, and he, he had held various, two of the great offices of state. He was a health minister for a while, of course, as well. You know, he, he would go out and do interviews, as, as he still does. And he would never refer, first of all, to number 10 to see what he should say. Uh, and he said Mrs. Thatcher at, at cabinet meetings, you know, would often set forth she always would set forth what she thought should be the direction of travel but then she'd allow her, her ministers to debate the direction of travel and sometimes you know in relation to specific departments and departmental policy they would you know they would win the the, the cabinet behind them and, and defeat Thatcher and Ken Clark said she would take it and this is, you can imagine Mrs Thatcher being like this with extraordinary bad grace uh, but she would accept it because, you know, she accepted. And you never hear this phrase now under Boris Johnson, that the prime minister was merely first among equals. Mm. Johnson sees himself as so first that he has no equals. And of course, you know, surrounded by the dolts that he has in his cabinet, you know, I, I can sort of understand why. Yes. And I mean, this is partly the problem with, with your stalking horse theory, I, I think. <laughs> All the possible stalking horses have been, they've, they've brought the... Uh, They've brought the screens around them and shot them in the paddock, haven't they? Because the people who might challenge him have, have, have largely been kicked out of the party or, or deselected or or whatever happened before uh, the 2019 general election. It's hard to think, isn't it, of somebody doing an interview in 20 or 30 years' time with somebody who held the offices of state that Ken Clark has held from this current government and them saying anything uh, of, of the weight that, that this interview with Ken Clark carries. I, don't, I really don't think you're going to get this kind of stuff from Liz Truss or Pretty Patel in, in future or, or Dominic Raab 
Um, it's, it's a, it's a, there is a real absence of talent at the top, isn't there? Oh, you could, I don't think you could sustain a conversation with them. I mean, the new European, I think it was you, asked me to do an interview not so long ago with Liz Truss. We've tried to interview most of these people. And, you know, it's not like we are as a newspaper kind of completely isolationist and not willing to listen to other points of view. I would love to have interviewed Liz Truss, but of course the answer was no. Why? Because I'm not seen as a journalist who will ask boring, safe questions. And this is why, frankly, our journalism is getting so boring. It's basically being interviewed by people who agree with you, who are write nice, unchallenging pieces. I'd like, I, I would genuinely like to have interviewed people like Liz Truss, but it's interesting now, the great heroes of, 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 of politics, people like Heseltine, King Clark, you know, the, there are no bigger beasts in the jungle in their day. They are making themselves available and they're happy to talk. And I find it intellectually very satisfying talking to them. And I, 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 I'm struck by the arrogance of people in, in government now who just are not willing to talk to people like me. They're only willing to talk to people who will agree with them. And, you know, I'm, I'm like, I, maybe I'm chippy, but I actually think that it's, you know, it's not done. I mean, Clark, you know, he's an old man now. He doesn't need to do this, but I think he has a sense of public service and duty. Uh, and I think that's why he gives interviews and he's willing to talk to people like me. Uh, and I don't really understand why people like Truss living in their ivory towers will only talk to people who agree with them. I think this is why this government is coming so seriously off the rails. Mm. Uh, and I think, too, by the way, and it was a very good idea of yours that I interviewed Anna Subri. And she she actually predicted everything that has really gone wrong because she said, look, my Tory friends and she has a lot of normal, ordinary Tory friends. They're not journalists. They're not in politics. But she said of her Tory friends are literally only a, a fraction who would consider voting conservative again because they've realized that Boris Johnson does not share their values. And, you know, one can go down the route of Angela Rayner and start talking about Tory scum and so on, but that is pretty daft, really, and pretty naive. These people are normal voters. They're not evil or wicked people. They were people who've been perhaps taken in by Johnson's nonsense and are now genuinely rather shocked to find out that he hasn't, has no values. You know, he, he, he doesn't care about women. He, he, he's a misogynistic views, as, as we reported in our paper this week. Uh, he breaks promises. Every time he speaks, he seems to be lying. He seems slovenly. He can't even be bothered to put on a suit properly, you know, even at things like Remembrance Day. And I think all of that with ordinary, traditional Tory voters, and are not bad people. I think they find it depressing and shocking. And they, they, they don't, as, as Anna Subri memorably put it, they don't think Boris Johnson is their cup of tea. No. And... and one of the fiercest critics of, of Boris Johnson over the last couple of weeks has been the Daily Mail, which is a paper that you worked for, for for many years. The, the editor of the Daily Mail, Geordie Gregg, stepped down on, on Wednesday. Um, I'm, I'm not sure he, he stepped down of his own volition, did he? Um, is that to do with the, the, the way that he's been criticising Boris Johnson over the last couple of weeks? Or is it, is it something else? Is it the kind of the, the restructure that it's been painted as? It, this worries me. And it seems to me for the Daily Mail, a, a very reg regressive step. I, you know, I've been a massive critic of the Daily Mail. I've said terrible things about it in the paper. I've said terrible things about it online. But fair's fair. I think Geordie Gregg was taking it in a very healthy direction he his paper unlike the daily telegraph unlike most of the murdoch rags was willing to suddenly suddenly say in relation to owen patterson actually no this is not acceptable this is corrupt this is wrong and i think you know in terms of our national life the daily mail 
as an influence, whether we like it or not. Mm. And I think for the Daily Mail to take the view that it did uh, was brave and it was principled and it was right. And I think, too, about the paper's uh, great concern for the people in Afghanistan that we in the West are uh, treated so abominably when we, when we withdrew so suddenly and left behind to face the Taliban. Uh, there were lots of things that that newspaper under Geordie Gregg uh, was doing that we as liberal with a small L progressive types should applaud. And it worries me intensely. Why now does Geordie depart? Why after the paper was so hostile to Boris Johnson's government uh, does Geordie depart? I think it was because I, I mean, my suspicion is that he was a very brave and principled journalist, uh, Geordie Gregg. He had his critics, but I think he was, there was a decency to him uh, that I think it, it would be foolish for somebody like me to deny. There was a decency there. And I think now the paper, if it is going to be edited, is, has been reported by somebody like Ted Verity, who was very much a Paul Dacre appointee. And Martin Clark, who's head of Mail Online, again, very much to the right politically, and you have to look at the values of Mail Online and the sort of stuff that I remember mm. them writing about my mate Gina Miller, the, the height of her problems when she was fighting for, for parliamentary sovereignty in the court over Article 50 and then the action against Boris Johnson. I think that if the Daily Mail starts to head massively to the right, as I fear it will, and I, I don't see how it can't under these new people, I think it's very bad for the country and very depressing. And I, I do think we should really salute Geordie Gregg for doing you know, what, he, what he could to try to reverse that paper and bring it into the modern world. Yes, he certainly did. Mention of Gina Miller, I do want to ask you one more thing about Ken Clark before, before we, we, we let you go. But you mentioned Gina Miller. You, you're writing a play about Gina Miller and you, you also have you also have a, a, a book out which we've been uh, which we've been advertising in the New European. Just tell us about your other your other projects. I did think I was the clapped out old hack who'd, who had had it, but certainly largely because of the pandemic and the fact that the place where I was staying in Poole in Dorset, my family home, was burgled and they nicked the television. I didn't know to do but write a play. And, and, and the book, of course, began as a series of a new European of old actors that I knew and so forth. I th I th the book started as I thought was interesting. And I think I made some points in it. I mean, people like Lord Delphon, you know, the great theatrical and television and film impresario who gave us great films like the original Murder on the Orient Express and so forth. He was an immigrant. His family fled Russia, you know, when there was so much anti-Semitism. His family came to this country. And he said, immigrants, you take immigrants out of this country, you know, the, the immigrants are the people that care most, that work so hard, uh, that give the most because they feel they owe it. And I thought, you know, he was making a really sound argument against Brexit about 20 or 30 years before it happened. And you look at his family, Lord Lou Grade, Michael Grade, the next generation. You know, these are people who've given this country so much. So I thought, I thought the book was, in a strange way, though it's about stars and actors and so on, I thought it made some important points. The play I'm finding daunting and terrifying. And, and in a way, after journalism, it, it's, a, it's, it's not easy. You know, every word, every sentence you have to think about, the actors all have views on, you know, what they're saying. And against all of that too, you're also writing about people who are living and alive, not least Gina Miller, not least Theresa May, because it's all about their courtroom showdown and the sort of behind the scenes stuff that was going on behind. And also Paul Dacre, by the way, the, who was at the time the editor of the Daily Mail, and he was a big 
big factor in that story because he was the enemies enemies of the people headline that was so controversial at the time. I think all of them believed in their own ways that they were doing what was right for their country, Um, you know, even Dacre. And yet they all came into this sort of massive head-on collision, uh, which, you know, underneath it all caused nothing but misery and despair and and unhappiness I think in all the all the protagonists of that story and I'm you know the Dacre you could argue enemies of the people was probably a factor in him ceasing to be editor of the Daily Mail um Gina Miller I think too was very hurt by the criticism of her and the the threats to her family and so forth and Theresa May of course left office um yes not necessarily because of that but but it was certainly a defeat that wasn't helpful for her so it's, it's a play it's an odd play really where Essentially, I like to think I've retained some sense of humour in it, and it, in its dark way, it's quite funny. But it's essentially a tragedy, really, because everybody manages to lose. And um, it's—I mean—that that is something to something to look forward to. When, when is it? When, when, do, when do you have to? When will we see the fruits of your labours on this? You know something about me, as as indeed Stephen Unwin, the director of this play, does which I'm a great man for rewriting. I don't believe there's such a good, such a thing as writing that's good. I just don't believe that. I don't even believe Shakespeare could do that. But I do believe on maybe the fifth rewrite, the sixth rewrite, it starts to get quite good. And I think I can genuinely say now, I think we're on something like version 8,364 of this play, which opens at the Riverside Studios in the middle of March, sorry, the, the middle of February, and it goes on till the middle of March. And I, it has been, I have to say, an absolute labour of, of love. Uh, there's been great anguish and great pain and misery behind its creation. But I think at the end of the day, if I say so myself, and I am a theatre critic, I think it's a five-star production. Tremendous. I look forward to that review. Before that, we've got, and of course, you can buy Star Turns by Tim Walker is, is available now. But before all that, we've got this great interview in the, uh, the New European issue 269, with Ken Clark that you've done, which people must check out. Would Ken Clark have been a good Prime Minister, do you think? Was he, was he dynamic enough? I mean, he, he had all the ideas, but do you even need to be dynamic to be a good Prime Minister? Oh, I think he was quite charming in his way, and he still is. He's a funny man. Uh, he's the kind of man you would genuinely like to meet in a pub. You know, unlike Nigel Farage, who basically made you run out of the pub. I think you'd genuinely like to meet Ken Clark in a pub. I think he's funny. He's not pompous. And, you know, it's a slightly personal remark I'm about to make now, but, you know, he lived in the house not far from Vauxhall Tube Station. It, it, it wasn't some great, you know, what you normally get with, with Tory MPs, some vast Kensington townhouse, like a Christmas cake. You know, it was a modest house. This was a man, OK, I know he's had directorships and, you know, he, he's made some money as a lawyer in his time, but he has clearly not capitalised ruthlessly on his position. Mm. Uh, and and I, I, I thought there's a decency there. There's a fundamental sense of public service. Uh, I think he's a kind man. I think he's a decent man. And I think it was rather lovely, sort of rather unlike me, maybe, in this broadcast. You know, he's not, he, he doesn't dislike his, his uh, political enemies. And even on Boris Johnson, he never said anything against him that was personally unpleasant. And I think, you know, those kind of measured people, and I think, too, maybe of Dominic Grieve in that regard, too, measured, thoughtful intelligent people you know who never raised their voices but unfortunately our country now a bit like ancient sparta it's the people who shout the loudest who now get their way 
And I think, that, you know, the Ken Clarks, I think of other people, maybe on the Labour benches, you go back to all the famous people who could have been prime minister and should have been, maybe. People like Dennis Healy, you know, there were all kinds of people like that. And to be honest, I would have literally any of them as prime minister. And, you know, Heseltine, I think, would have been great too. Really, after one bad prime minister after another, we tend necessarily to get one that's worse. I mean, I would argue that Theresa May was worse than Cameron, largely, I suppose, because of Cameron's mistakes and the legacy that he left the poor woman. But then, of course, Johnson following May was eminently worse. And, and I think it reminds me of what a great mate of mine, Richard Eden, at the Telegraph used to say to me, you know, you moan about the editor term, but the first rule of working at the Telegraph is the editor who follows the editor we've got is always worse. He said, that's the basic rule. And I say exactly the same about everybody, you know, who's, who's sort of urging, you know, Johnson to sort of go and, and bring in a new prime minister, because God help us, we could end up with Michael Gove, or we could end up with Liz Truss. And I don't really see things getting so much better under them, potentially worse. There you go. The worst is yet to come. What a cheery thought to, to end on. You can read Tim Walker's brilliant interview with Ken Clark, along with Tim's regular columns in issue 269 of The New European. It's at News Agents Now, or you can subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Steve. Before the Hall of Shame, I want to tell you about an excellent podcast from The New European. Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives tells the life stories of amazing Europeans in short 10-minute bursts. A superb listen. It's available wherever you get your podcasts. And we will have more news about new podcasts from the New Europeans soon. Don't forget, too, that if you want to be sure of getting a copy of the newspaper and access to our online archive, you can support the New European. Subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. So, finally, it's the Hall of Shame, the home for putrid pundits, pompous politicians, things that get my goat generally. So much choice every week. Gillian Keegan's in the Hall of Shame. It was she who was asked uh, whether the government had recorded the minutes of a call between Lord Bethel and Owen Paterson and Randox, as Randox, who, of course, Owen Paterson was repping for, were awarded a COVID test contract worth 133 million. We have been unable to locate a formal note of that meeting, said Julian Keegan. Well, you, you wouldn't take notes, would you, at a meeting to discuss something as puny as a £133 million contract? Uh, Julian Keegan later cl uh, clarified the government has not lost the minutes of a meeting between Randox and the health minister. It just can't find them at the moment. Andrew Rossendale is in the Hall of Shame. Here's what he said about taking away the £20 uplift to universal credit. I think there are people that quite like getting the extra £20, but maybe they don't need it. Uh, and here's what he said a few weeks later uh, when he said that he didn't think MPs should be banned from having second jobs worth considerably more than £20 a week. He said we have to realise that we have human beings who have families and responsibilities. Hmm. George Eustace, of course, also in the Hall of Shame, he said this week that working mothers could get new jobs in abattoirs to fill the gaps left by EU nationals after Brexit. I'm looking forward to seeing that in the next series of Motherland. Diane Morgan in a slaughterhouse with a fag on. Marvellous stuff. Maybe they could do it in the new series of Sex in the City as well. The meatpacking district of Manhattan, but actual meatpacking uh, involved. Thank you to George Eustace for that splendid idea. Alack, 
Igad Harumf, Anwidikum is in the Hall of Shame, of course, because this is Anwidikum Corner, and we read out the most ridiculous bits from Anwidikum's ridiculous column in the Ridiculous Daily Express. And Anne wrote this week, if we ban MPs from having second jobs, the only people who will want to be in Westminster are those so rich the salary is irrelevant or so underachieving that they think it is a fortune. Is, is that what Anne Whittacom really thinks about MPs, that, that they are underachieving if they think that £80,000 and free housing is a decent salary for representing people? It's incredible, isn't it? And also writes that Geoffrey Cox was only doing two and a half hours a day of private work. And she says that's the same as another MP who goes home and watches TV for two and a half hours when they get home. Uh, it's incredible, isn't it? I wonder, does she seriously believe that Geoffrey Cox, his day is, you know, you get up and then you do 10, 12 hours of work as an MP and then you stop for a light meal and then it's two and a half more hours of lucrative lawyering and then well that's no time to do anything else it's up the wooden hill to bedfordshire if that really is true then why do so few of jeffrey cox's constituents seem to have seen anything of him recently maybe it's Anne widdicombe's logic that is underachieving but foremost in the hall of shame this week is nadine doris the culture secretary she's the culture secretary she's the culture secretary it's the greatest act of overpromotion since Caligula and his horse. Nadine Doris, whose cabinet brief includes giving money to the BBC, uh, has been accused of trying to police Laura Koonsberg uh, on Twitter. And uh, she took exception uh, to Laura Koonsberg reporting on Twitter that she had heard from an MP uh, about Boris Johnson's appearance before the 1922 committee of backbenchers the mp said that he looked weak and sounded weak and that his authority is evaporating nadine doris uh, took umbrage with this she wrote back in a now deleted tweet laura i very much like and respect you as we both know that his text is ridiculous nowhere near as ridiculous as the person who sent it imagine being so tin-eared and so arrogant that after two weeks of talk about public standards in office, politicians overreaching themselves, getting involved where they shouldn't get involved. The culture secretary, who is in charge of the relationship between the government and the BBC, thinks it's appropriate for her to rebuke a BBC journalist for publishing something that she doesn't like. To her credit, Nadine Dorries uh, deleted the tweet. All we can do now is hope it's just an aberration from her and she doesn't do something else equally stupid and equally dangerous. Like putting Paul Dacre in charge of Ofcom. That was the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks to Tim Walker. Thanks to our producer, Ellie Longman Rood. Episodes of the New European Podcast are now released every Thursday. If you enjoy this one, why not subscribe and rate and review it on your podcatcher of choice? If you'd like to enjoy more podcasts from the New European, check out Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives, available where you got this podcast. And again, if you want to enjoy more from us at the New European, visit our website and join us. You can subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. On socials, you can join our Facebook readers group. You can follow TNE on Twitter at The New European. You can follow me on Twitter at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. Until the next time we meet, so long snowflakes.